Here's a tip for all you entrepreneurs out there. If you're getting paid to promote crypto, you might want to disclose that little fact to the SEC. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Happy Monday. Happy Monday, indeed. It is a happy Monday. It's the yeah. first day of the fourth quarter. The market's up, which is great because the month of September was terrible. The S&P 500 was down 9.3%. It was the worst month since March of 2020. And even with the 2% rise that we're seeing today, that really, that just means that year-to-date, the S&P 500 is only down 24%. Yeah. So, fourth-quarter comebacks are always popular in the world of sports. How are you feeling about the prospect for a fourth quarter comeback in um, 2022 for investors? Hmm. So the prospect. I mean, listen, we could flip a coin, and who really knows? Um, I, I guess so. For me, I don't really expect to see some sort of turnaround, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of writing on the wall that that means we uh, that that's telling us we still have some stuff to get through. I mean, for me. I mean, I, th- I think you should continue to expect volatility. I-, I think it's worth continuing to pay attention to the disparity between the two and ten-year treasuries, right? I mean, we don't, you know, typically uh, go that macro on our decision making, right? But I think understanding sentiment is is at least uh, helpful, particularly in a time like this. And-, and like it or not, the disparity between the two and ten right now that that is an indicator of sentiment. Um, we have two Fed meetings left in this year. Two more uh, early on next year. I think those are meetings that will get far more attention than they normally would. I, I start to wonder if we won't see the Fed. I, I don't expect to see. So you, you hear that word "pivot." I think being thrown around these days, like, will a Fed pivot now and try to you know get things back to a little bit more normal? I don't know that we should expect something like that. Now, I do think that they may consider taking their foot off the gas a little bit in order to start letting these recent rate hikes play their way through the economy to see what kind of impact they're having. I mean, it's it's not reasonable to expect. You know, rate hike, and then the next day inflation abates. Right? That's not how it works. Right? There is a little bit of a lag there, but I think as we go into earnings season, right, I think we're going to see margin pressures continue as companies continue to deal with costs. But we're also cycling through a difficult stretch here. So, it, to me, looking at the guidance beyond these results, you start to wonder if maybe that guidance starts to become a little bit more palatable. Because depending on how that macro picture shapes up, that could portend a more encouraging 2023, even when you have everyone calling for a recession now. Bank of America had a note out this morning looking at the data for situations like where we find ourselves in now, which is to say the S&P 500 is down more than 20% through the first nine months of the year. Yeah. And they they noted that, with the exception of 2008, things got better over the last three months. Yeah. Now, that's encouraging to me, Jason, right up until the point that I look at, well, when did this happen? When did <laughs> we find ourselves in this situation? And first of all, it hasn't happened that often. And other than 2008, it only happened four times in history, and those four times were 2002, 
You tell me, Jason. I look at this and I think I don't think this is particularly relevant. Just because the world of investing is so different today, even compared to 20 years ago, never mind 50 and 60 years ago. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. I mean, th- things have changed a lot in a short period of time, um, and, and I tend to agree with you. I mean, I don't know that I, f- I find that information all that relevant. I mean, we were talking side of desk the other day at the office, right? And we were looking at those charts and kind of looking at 2008 year to date versus 2022 year to date, and then looking at how 2008 finished out to say, okay, well, maybe this is how 2022 could finish out. And I think one of the reasons we were entertaining that notion is. You know, 2008. That that was a time that was a very obviously unique time, and then there were some fundamental issues at play in regard to the economy, right? I mean, there were, there was obviously massive bailouts going on in the in the mortgage-backed securities market. There was a lot of money pumped into the economy um, in order to address a lot of a lot of failures. Uh, there was a lot of money pumped into the economy here in 2020 and 2021 over COVID, right? And I mean, at some point you have to pay the piper there, right? At some point you have to you have to deal with that, and and so I kind of look at twenty, I kind of look at two thousand and eight as is perhaps a little bit more applicable, at least it, 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 it is as a possibility, which which leads me to think that I, I don't know that I would look at the rest of twenty twenty two. Um, and, and hope for some kind of a turnaround. I feel like we're still kind of really, kind of getting past, kind of getting through this hangover of of all of this capital that's been pumped through the economy. And, and uh, it, the one encouraging thing, and I've, and I've mentioned this data point before, and it's just something to keep in mind, right? I mean, we've we've looked at these last two quarters and we saw economic contraction, and so now we have this debate going back and forth between some: are we in a in a recession now or not? I mean, of course, we met the the two consecutive quarters of contraction, but there are other qualifiers there that that didn't really come into play, and so it seems like most folks would argue we're not in a recession. Maybe it's like a recession light. I don't know. But the one thing to keep in mind is that, generally speaking, like historically, stocks perform worse in the year leading up to the recession, and I think that matters because if in 2023 we actually do see more of these qualifiers hit in a recession is declared, right? And and that ultimately is it, right? It's kind of perception is everything. If it's declared, then at least you know it's declared. Uh, we were seeing more and more banks getting on board with calling for a recession at some point in 2023. Well, maybe this stretch that we're witnessing right now, that we're enduring right now, maybe this is sort of that storm before the calmer seas, hopefully at some point next year. So it's all to say that. These are parts of cycles. We we endure them as investors, but again, I mean, these are the reasons why we invest the way that we do here, because trying to make investing decisions based on macroeconomic events, it's just difficult to do sustainably well. You're trying to predict the future, and that's just you can't do that sustainably well. From the stock market, we go to the crypto market. Kim Kardashian has agreed to pay a one and a quarter million dollar fine to settle charges from the SEC that she failed to disclose the fact that when she was touting Ethereum Max's cryptocurrency on Instagram to her 330 million followers, she was actually being paid to do that. If you're 
someone who is genuinely bullish on crypto, you got to be happy about this, don't you? I mean, aren't you happy about the fact that the SEC is? I mean, in this case, it's Kim Kardashian. She's certainly not the only celebrity or influencer out there being paid to to tout crypto. I think if you're bullish on crypto, you're you're probably happy about this, aren't you? I would think. I mean, to me, this seems like something you'd want to see if you believe in the long-term opportunities of of crypto uh, in general. I mean, nothing against Kim Kardashian. I'm sure she's a bright woman. Um, I mean, you have to be to have generated that kind of wealth. You're doing something right. Um, by the same token, I mean, I have a hard time believing that she's fully schooled on the intricacies of the crypto market, right? I mean, I don't know that a whole lot of people really are. I mean, we have some people out there that love to tout that they are, but um, it, it's 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 still very difficult to to fully wrap your head around. And so, I mean, what we've seen over the last couple of years, it's really been a money grab, right? From the the Super Bowl commercials to just the incessant commercials that you see on. CNBC, for example, right? I mean, so if you extend it beyond just her, I mean, like I said, this is a money grab. All of the celebs and athletes getting behind it, I mean, it feels pretty clear that they don't really know what it is or the risks involved. I mean, they're just taking the money. And I don't blame them for that, but there are rules that you got to adhere to, right? I mean, the SEC is saying, like, you can't just hashtag ad and, and, Say well, I've I've disclosed it, right? I mean, you actually have to disclose with the SEC um, a figure, right, that you're being paid to to do this. And and to me, this the the challenges with the crypto market. And, and you're going to have people out here that that are all for it, and you got people that are all against it. I think most people know I'm I'm a little bit more glass half empty on it. It's just not something I can fully wrap my head around, and so it's not something I um, am ever going to really pursue. But I. I you could argue that it's very much a business model that depends on people pumping it in order to get more people in on buying it, right? Sort of that greater fool argument. It's only really worth as much as the next person will pay you for it, right? And so these ad campaigns that we've seen so much of over the last year, I mean, these ad, you know, ad campaigns that focus on younger folks, they still have that inclination to do what celebs and athletes tell them they should do, right? I mean, that opinion carries more weight, particularly when you're younger uh, as, as opposed to older. And investing has become more accessible now than ever before. And so you see this massive interest in crypto in, in a Particularly younger demographic, it seems like the older demographic takes it with a, a little bit more of, of a healthy dose of skepticism. So I, I think these are important things, right? There needs to be credence lent to this market if if there is to be long term success in this, in this market. I don't know that there will be. Um, for me, it does feel like there is some sort of staying power for some part of it. Maybe it's Bitcoin or some combination of assets. But you know, I kind of I liken it to. Penny stocks versus stocks, right? We here at, at the Fool, we love stocks, but we we eschew penny stocks, right? We tell people to stay away from penny stocks because of their speculative nature. And so, crypto, I, I kind of look at it the same way. I mean, we're starting to see maybe this bifurcation of sort of the the more established crypto markets and then the, the penny stock version of crypto markets. And so, if there is going to be a long term future for the crypto markets, then you definitely want to see. Um, you want to see more rules. You want to see more ad- adherence to rules, and and you want you want governing bodies to lend credence to it. And, and so, from that perspective, it seems like this is probably the right call. 
Jason Moser, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. If you're thinking there haven't been as many IPOs lately, you're right. So, why did Porsche IPO when so many other businesses are choosing to wait? Dylan Lewis and Brian Feraldi take a closer look at the luxury automaker being spun off by Volkswagen. We have shares of Porsche hitting the public markets last week. This was a big debut, big debut for a variety of reasons. The, the new public market has been kind of dry recently, as, as we just talked about. But also, this was one of the biggest public issuances in recent history in Europe. I think it was one of the largest of the last uh, couple decades. Porsche, for most of our listeners, probably not a name that needs a ton of introduction, but I think we can just kind of talk through a little bit of where they sit in the auto market and some of the market dynamics there, Brian. Yeah, so Porsche is a name that everybody listening is certainly uh, heard of, and I certainly knew that they were a car maker. I was surprised about some of the numbers that they threw out, though. So I knew that this is a, a luxury brand. I didn't realize how luxury of a brand this was, and just how few cars they are making when compared to some of their competitors. Yeah, the dynamics are pretty incredible. I mean, if you if you look at you know the model pages on the website, you can kind of get a sense. Like they start a lot of their models in the seventy k range, and I'd say. That they have some models that are kind of in that approachable luxury range, but they get pretty unapproachable pretty quick. They get into the six figures pretty quickly. And so they kind of live in the same place in the market that you start to see people thinking about Tesla and Maserati. Maybe not quite in the lane of the Ferrari, who's another public company uh, that's uh, you know a luxury competitor. Uh, but Brian, that's all to say their their customers are pretty well healed. And when you're thinking about overall volume, they are not someone who is making millions of cars a year. This is a company that is making generally hundreds of thousands of cars a year. And despite that they're making so relatively a modest amount of cars, this is a company that came public at a pretty sizable market cap. In fact, it actually is close to rivaling the market cap of the company that it's being spun out of. Yeah. So, as I understand it, I think the numbers might change a little bit, but Porsche is now the fifth largest automaker in the world that's public behind Tesla, Toyota, BYD, which is a Chinese auto company, and its former parent company, Volkswagen, which is incredible because it is within spitting distance. Of its former parent company, current market cap it's fluctuated a little bit since the company's gone public, but around 75 billion, which is more or less where Volkswagen currently lives, and that's on a fraction of the overall revenue that its parent company has. Well, we are public market investors, and we don't really care about unit volume. What investors care about, Dylan, is revenue and profits and margins. And when it comes to those things, Porsche definitely has the leg up on many, many of its competitors. It does, and that's really where being in the luxury space sets it apart from a lot of the other car makers out there. I mean, they they ship a fraction of what the likes of Ford and GM do, but they do it at a much higher operating profit. In their case, uh, typically in the mid to high teens, and they're saying maybe we could even get a into the 20% range, that offers a little bit more of a compelling business model than a lot of the traditional automakers. I do think, though, Brian, automaking, it's just hard. It's a tough business in general. And being an elite automaker and still only having 15 to 20% operating margins really speaks to that. It's an incredibly tough business, made all the more tough by the fact that right now we are in the midst of an automobile revolution. The shift to electrification of vehicles is fully underway. We are still in the early endings, and this is both a big opportunity for companies like Porsche, but also a massive threat. Yeah, anytime I see something like this, where we have a company that is 
you know, formerly a subsidiary, and then kind of coming out and being isolated as its own public company. I always wonder, okay, why? You know, what what is the story? What's the narrative that's being spun by management? And what we heard was that basically we want to create some capital to help us focus on electromobility initiatives. And so that's getting at electrifying uh, the fleet and having more offerings that are EVs. Um, right now, I'd say Porsche is primarily a legacy automaker that is working its way into electrification, like so many of the others. It does have some EVs out there, and they have some very ambitious goals about where they want to go with it. They say by 2030, uh, they want to have about 80% of the new vehicles uh, with an all-new electric powertrain, which is incredible. It's a great goal to have. Right now, I believe 23% of all vehicles delivered uh, were electrified in recent quarters. So They have a ways to go with that, but that seems to be where they want to be putting this money that they're getting, in addition to some shareholder enrichment from the people who have formerly owned shares uh, or, or formerly owned the company by way of Volkswagen. Yeah, that 23% number certainly stood out to me. That was much higher than I thought it was going to be. Notably, they say that 23% of their vehicles delivered last year were electrified. That doesn't mean they are fully electric. Only 14% of their cars were fully electric. Uh, the delta there would be for hybrids, which the company considers to be electrified. But still, that's a higher percentage than I thought the company was going to stay at this stage of the game. Yeah, and I think it's an important part of the narrative for almost any automaker at this point. You know, I think we're all pretty much on the same page. EVs are the future, and we've seen it with the lofty market caps that a lot of EV-focused companies have been getting. You can understand how all of these other automakers want to get into the mix. So we know that some of the money raised is going to go towards funding those efforts. Some of the money raised is going to go by way of a special dividend to Volkswagen shareholders, which Brian, I have to say, is a little confusing. Because we, we were kind of sorting through the corporate structure for this deal, trying to understand exactly where ownership lied. And one of the things that was most confusing to me as we were kind of batting this around is realizing okay, Porsche has a $75 billion ish market cap, Volkswagen has roughly a $75 billion market cap, Volkswagen owns 75% of Porsche. So, is most of the valuation there driven entirely by the company's equity stake in Porsche? That seems bizarre to me. That is what the numbers suggest, and that definitely had us scratching our heads at first. But it's really when you dig into the capital structure of Volkswagen that the numbers start to make sense. Yes, Volkswagen's market cap is around $75 billion, but that's not the only way to measure the size of the business. Another way is using what's called enterprise value. That's when you also factor in a company's debt and cash. And when you look at that number, the valuation numbers make much more sense. Yeah, and I'm surprised because this is a company that has a balance sheet in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And I would think, given that, given that they're having a capital injection here, we might use some of that money to shore up the company's balance sheet and make it a little bit healthier. That doesn't really seem to be the route that they're going, though. They are paying out half of the proceeds from this deal as a special dividend to their shareholders. That makes very little sense to me. To you point, your point, Volkswagen is is facing a, a existential crisis right now, given the electrification, and they are going to need billions upon billions of dollars poured into their company in order to electrify their fleet, to build out a charging network, and to really make this transition uh, happen. The fact that they're spinning off Porsche to um, to turn that into cash does make sense to me. What I'm scratching my head about is, why are they then giving this money to shareholders when they should be using that capital themselves to accelerate their plans to electrify their fleet? If you're looking for other reasons as to why this deal is happening and why the spin-out's happening, I think 
just in understanding the dynamics of market cap and relative size of these businesses, you realize Porsche is probably a little bit more of an attractive business than Volkswagen at this point. And often you'll see companies do this so that the more attractive business is not weighed down by the business that either doesn't have as attractive a business model and financials, um, or is saddled with some things that make it very hard for the true player to shine in the company. Yeah, it, when you look at the market caps of these two companies, it's it's clear that the market was cle- was not valuing uh, the Porsche being held up by Volkswagen when it was uh, purely be behind behind the scenes. Now that it's spun out, the, there could be a re-rating of Volkswagen's uh, position to to account for its massive uh, ownership stake in Porsche, and it's even possible that over time that might be willing to take even more of their ownership and uh, sell it to public investors, given the the results that we've seen uh, so far. So that could be a way for them to. Raise capital uh, down the road should, should they uh, choose to. So uh, when I dig into that, I think that this spinoff makes sense. We talked about how we were a little unsure of the use of capital with this deal. I think one thing also to be mindful of with this deal, Brian, is um, these are related companies, and they are going to continue to be related companies, both in how the shares are held and also who is running the show at these companies. It's going to be the same guy. That's correct. Oliver Bloom is the CEO of both Volkswagen and Porsche. He's going to be the CEO of two publicly traded automakers at the same time. Uh, necessarily, that has some investors raising question marks about his ability to truly ma- remain independent and make decisions for both companies. But so far, uh, he's been he's been playing down that threat. But that is certainly something for investors to watch. So, Brian, when you take a step back and look at everything we just detailed here, I know we didn't go super far into the numbers, but what do you see? Is this an interesting investable idea? Uh, Is this something you're watching? Where does it sit for you? This is a company that I had no interest in prior to looking at the numbers, and I am slightly more interested after we see it. Uh, you do there are some good things to see in, in Porsche. Uh, it's it's financially very strong. It's profitable. It has a very strong uh, customer base. In fact, the company actually grew its revenue throughout the pre- pandemic. Uh, it's further along in electrification than most of its uh, peers, uh, and its it, its balance sheet is going to be pr- in pretty good shape when com- compared to that. However, I don't see a ton. Of upside potential uh, here. I don't like the dual class, uh, the, the dual CEO role. The ownership structure here is very complex. And there's also just still question marks around the EV transition. Management is telling a rosy story about what a tailwind it's going to be uh, for, for the business, but I'm more skeptical than that. So this is a company that wouldn't, wouldn't interest me anyway. So I think it is going to be a decent business. And I understand why some investors are interested in it. But for me, though, it's, it's a pass. Yeah, I think that makes sense. To me, I'd put it in the worth studying bucket, mostly because when you see a company that is capable of finding margin in an industry where a lot of companies can't, it's always worth understanding how they do that and whether that's something that can be brought to the rest of the industry or if it's a unique competitive advantage. Um, in this case, I, you know, the, the growth profile of this company is just something that I'm not as interested in. We're generally looking at single-digit year-over-year growth. The margins are good for the industry, but not as good as we can see elsewhere. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.